Well, thank you guys all so much for being here. We are in the middle of our Deuteronomy series, and I'm going to be pulling from a few different verses in chapter 4, and they'll be up on the screen as we get started. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the blessing of this community, of this church, um, striving to follow you, to seek you, to encounter you. Um, Right now, as we study your word and worship you um, with all that we have in this moment, We pray that you would draw us closer together as you draw us closer to you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and following, beginning in verse 9. But take care and watch yourselves closely. This is Moses speaking to the Israelites. So as neither to forget the things that your eyes have seen, nor let them slip from your heart all the days of your life. Uh, Make them known to your children and your children's children. I just want to pause for one brief moment and note that in many of your translations, you might find the word mind there instead of heart. But in the ancient Israelite mindset, heart is the seat of intellect. Um, So the word is there is heart. But when we when we hear it in English, that sounds weird to think something with your heart. Um, But Jesus uses that phrasing often, right? He knew what they were thinking in their hearts. Um, So it's the center of of that intellect. So here we go. Um, Don't forget the things that your eyes have seen, nor let them slip from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. How How you once stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, that's another word for Sinai, when the Lord said to me, assemble the people for me, and I will let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me as long as they live on the earth and may teach their children so. Also, that word fear is not great, sort of like be in awe of, which could also include some fear, but also wonder and amazement. You approached and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain was blazing up to the very heavens, shrouded in dark clouds. And then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form. There was only a voice. Continuing on in verse 15, since you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire, take care and watch yourselves closely so that you do not act corruptly by making an idol for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And when you look up to the heavens and see the sun, the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, Do not be led astray and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples everywhere under heaven. But the Lord has taken you, verse 20, and brought you out of the iron smelter out of Egypt to become a people of his very own possession as you are now. We're going to go to 23. So be careful not to forget the covenant that the Lord your God made with you. And not to make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden for you. For the Lord your God is a devouring fire, a jealous God. The title of this message this afternoon is, You Saw No Form. You Saw No Form. Why is God so deeply concerned with ensuring that as Israel recalls their experience at Mount Sinai, that they heard only a voice but saw no form? Now, they did see things, right? They saw the miracle of the water parting as they came out of Egypt into uh, the desert experience. They saw clouds, dark clouds. They saw fire. They heard things, but they heard a voice. They saw no form. Why is God so deeply concerned? Well, I just want to at least note one thing. Do you recall what the Israelites 
did at the base of the mountain while Moses was up there hanging out for way too long and they got a little nervous. What did they do down below? They made a golden calf. So it's possible that as this group here that Moses is speaking to, those who actually, they weren't really the ones that stood at that mountain. This is the next generation to come as they're getting ready to go in the promised land 40 years later. He wants to make sure that they don't recall that golden calf incident more than they recall that mountain incident where they saw no form. Also, you'll remember that they're coming out of Egypt, that iron smelting furnace, where people did a lot of form making over and over and over again. The pantheon of Egyptian gods stretches out hundreds of gods that were discussed and talked about. And so as they're coming out of Egypt, they had come out of a place, an experience where there had been a lot of different gods. Gods to the sun, gods to the moon, gods to the animals, gods to the winged creatures. In fact, in Deuteronomy 29, we will have another warning against these idols. It'll say this, you know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. So this is after they had their desert wanderings and they're going up through Moab and Ammon and all these other places. You've seen their detestable things, the filthy idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold that were among them. Filthy idols, Deuteronomy says in 29. Filthy idols, things that are made of wood and stone, of silver and gold that were among them. The word there in Hebrew is honestly one of my favorite words, and it's gelulim. You say gelulim? It can mean idols, and it occurs 48 times in the Bible, but 39 of those times occurs in the book of Ezekiel alone. Ezekiel loves this word, gelulim. And it's the word we translate as idols or filthy idols or detestable things. But we're trying to figure out, like, where does this word come from? And we think that primarily it comes from this word, um, that it is a, the same word is to roll something, right? That this is a dung beetle in case you don't know, an Egyptian dung beetle. And, um, this is the word that is used in Deuteronomy 29 to talk to you about what your idols are, right? They are, um, pieces of dung. So Ezekiel will again, again, the Bible again, again, refer to idols as, uh, dung balls. And so why, right? Why would they, isn't that great? I mean, it's like, (laughs) it's not just you have little statues. It's like, well, let me just tell you what they are. They're gelulim. They're little dung balls. Um, And actually I was talking with Rabbi Ari. Do you guys want me to take that off the screen? Okay. I was talking with Rabbi Ari about this word and he said um, he was walking up a a road in Jerusalem and there was a goat in front of him that let loose. And he's like, and all the gelulim just came rolling right down the road. And I was like, that's hilarious, right? Um, So in Interestingly enough, the Egyptians worshipped the dung beetle as one of their gods. They saw the dung beetle and its formation of that ball as similar to the sun rising in the morning and setting down again. And this recreation. So this is actually one of the Egyptian gods that was represented, new creation and life. And even later on in the Ptolemaic period, um, one of them says, Uh, An Egyptian says, I evolved myself under the evolutions of the god Kepri. 
this scarab God, this dung beetle God. In Israel, in the land of Canaan, in Israel, we have found scarabs all over the land. It was one of the most popular symbols coming out of Egypt, that beautiful beetle that tourists buy when they go to Egypt and they wear it around their wrist or their neck. Um, People would use them as seals and inscribe their name on the other side and then use that, that's what we see on this side, um, as a way to sort of press into ink. And so this God was known well in Egypt that would form these Gelulim, and that is the word then that the Bible is going to use, not always, but oftentimes for the word idols. So whenever you see the word idols in your Bible, you can at least consider that it's possible that the Bible is telling you that these, um, this is what the Bible thinks of, of those works of stone or wood. Um, and so that's, you know, the more, you know, there we go. So, um, you've always wanted to know about dung beetles and how they work. And I have to say that I was incredibly distracted by how necessary dung beetles are. And that if we didn't have them, we would be living, um, in a place where we would have to be doing the work of the dung beetle. And so, um, it is deeply, they, I think they live everywhere on the earth except Antarctica. Um, I learned a lot about them. Um, yeah, in my research for this message. Okay, so <laughs> probably got too distracted with the Gelulim for some time. It's fascinating what God has made. Okay, so in then this warning that God is giving the Israelites through Moses, he's like, be careful, don't form any idols. What I think of them is that they are dung balls, right? And the reason why God's having this conversation with Israel is because they're having to have these questions. They're having to decide the difference and distinction between monolatry, are they faithful to one God, or is it true that they are true monotheists and that there exists in the world only one God? Does that make sense? Can you guys hear the distinction? Is Israel learning that as they've been brought up out of Egypt, their God and their only God, who is a jealous God, yod heh vav is the only God there to be faithful to. But in fact, yes, of course, we know that there are these other gods. Or is it that there is only one God that exists? That's the difference. And it's actually true that as we read through our story in our text, we find out that Israel is going to be wrestling with this quite a bit, over and over and over again. And we know that they wrestle with that concept because the prophets talk about it. The prophets talk about how Israel is worshiping other gods, that they're setting up places for other gods, that as they came up and out of the desert and into the land of Canaan, that the Canaanite gods that were there started being subsumed also into Israelite culture. We even have ancient texts that talk about yod heh vav the God of Israel, and his Asherah, his, like his wife. And again, when we find those texts, we freak out. What's going on? Israel's not strict monotheists. And we're like, no, no, of course they aren't yet. That's developing. They're figuring it out. Some might be, some may not be. How are they kind of sorting all of this through? Uh, the prophet Elijah has this encounter with the god Baal, um, where the Israelites in the north up near Mount Carmel have been worshiping with Jezebel and Ahab, Baal, this storm god of thunder and lightning who would come rolling in and 
crash down his lightning bolt onto the earth. And as that lightning bolt and the rains hit the earth, then the Asherah poles would come up, this God of fertility, right? And so the Israelites are saying, well, I don't really know. Do we have to? And Elijah climbs up on the mountain and does all this crazy, amazing stuff. And as he's up there on Mount Carmel, he says, okay, today you have to choose. Either the Lord is God or Baal. So let's have a contest. And he sets up a contest and and God is God and Baal is nothing is the end of that, right? And when we hear that word Baal in the statue of the storm God, which again, we've found many of those different statues, what are these other words we'd use for Baal? Well, image or idol or graven image or God or fetish or Baalim or, or Isis or Astarte. Like these things were things that the Israelites were having to contend with. Even then as things are progressing in Israelite and then Judean and Jewish theologies, as Israel gets uh, captive into Babylon, coming back out of Babylon then back into Judah, they will be strict monotheists. And not just that, but they will reject any graven image. There's something that happens in that period of captivity where they're going to start to say, not only is it that we're to be faithful only to one God, which we've always known, we actually believe there is only one God. And they'll start that strict monotheism. And that will then, when they return, set up then the second temple period as they rebuild the temple. And that will set our time into Jesus. Which might be why they get so mad when Jesus says things like this. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they'll never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. What my father has given me is greater than all else. And no one can snatch it out of the father's hand. The father and I are one. John chapter, John chapter 10, verse 27 and following. And it says right after this that they took up stones ready to kill him. Because he is claiming to be God. The father and I are one. Like, well, that's it. Blasphemy, right? We've moved out of, in their view, monotheism. And now this guy, who does he think he is? Standing here claiming to be God in human form. The Bible and the New Testament will continue to wrestle with this idea all the way up through the rest, the end of Revelation, trying to explain to these followers of Jesus that the most miraculous, insane, mysterious thing has happened, that God has taken on human flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. God has dwelt among us in this person of Jesus, but we are not now polytheists. We are still strict monotheists, believing in one God who is now expressed in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Spirit. And so at the end of Revelation, we'll have words, verses like this. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, right? There's nothing else except for God, even as expressed in the person of Jesus Christ, all of it, right? Now, why else is God then so deeply concerned about not just Israel's faithfulness, but their real need to not set up any idols, any gelulim, any work of the hands, right? Well, I think Obi-Wan says it best, right? Your eyes can deceive you. Don't trust them. That there is a time and a place where we're all trying to grab hold of the thing that we can visually apprehend, that can show us that we should move forward, that we should trust something. But the truth is that our eyes deceive us. And we have stories about this all throughout our text. We have stories where Isaac, you know, is 
is betrayed by Jacob because of something he can't see, but he can touch, but there's something, there's some deception in that process. And then again, Jacob or Israel, Jacob will be betrayed by his own sons, by something that sort of, he can try to see and apprehend and touch. His eyes are deceiving him a little bit. When Lot looks out on the plain, when he and Abraham are too uh, wealthy to share the land anymore, he looks out and he sees that the plain of Sodom is well watered. Right, And this is where in Genesis 13, we get this great foreshadowing. Uh, Now, the people of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Now, we're not going to see the destruction of Sodom until Genesis 19. But here we have like this wonderful little verse warning us right now that Lot's eyes have deceived him. He looked and he found a well-watered plain, but he didn't look at the content of the character of the people lying there. Now, we also find in stories like Samson and Delilah... Um, pictures where Samson's eyes so deceive him that it's not until his eyes are gouged out at the end of that story in the book of Judges they can actually see. I was getting really irritated as I was watching, like looking for these images because all of it, it looks like Delilah's the problem. And I just got to say, she's not the problem. Samson is the problem. From the very beginning, he's the problem. And then I found other like, you know, more... Um, more modern takes on Samson, like how to not ruin your, your, your life through relationships like Samson did, which is a weird take on that story. Or lessons from Samson surviving the anointing. Like it was just his burden of being anointed was just too great, you know. And if we could just learn these things of how to survive our anointing, then we won't fail like Samson. But the truth is that the story of Samson, which should never be taught to a child unless you want to... Um, find words like Gelulim kind of things in there, um, that Samson, he does this thing. And when he sees this Philistine woman at the very beginning of the story in the book of Judges, he's like, hey, go get her for me. But his father and mother are like, come on, we don't do that. Marry your cousin like we always do, right? And, um, and it, would you have to go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson says to his father, take her for me. It's not just get, it's like, take her for me, like as though she's a possession, right? Because She's right in my eyes. Like, my eyes are telling me that she's the one that's right for me. In fact, the entire book of Judges is a lesson on what not to do. And the book of Judges itself will sum it up regularly. In those days, there's no king in Israel, and all the people did what was right in their own eyes. Their eyes are deceiving them. Something similar happens with David. And Bathsheba. I mean, the author of Matthew is so irritated at Bathsheba that he doesn't even mention her name. He's like Uriah's wife. Like, let's just not even talk about Bathsheba. But as David is out there, and by the way, his palace is at the top. So anything that's happening below, he's going to be able to see. And so there it says, it happens late one afternoon. David rises from his couch. He's walking about and he sees her. His eyes draw him to something that is not good. And then he's going to kill in order to keep this secret. This might be why Jesus says things like, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away, which has really nothing to do with television that you might watch or, you know, a rated whatever, although maybe that too. But that it's particularly about, we have these stories in our Bible where if only The people, the leaders who were supposed to be leaders of Israel, Samson and David and others, would not have been deceived by what they saw, what they visually apprehended. They could have possibly maybe uh, maintained faithfulness and obedience to God. 
This continues to push so much that, again, in the Second Temple period, the Jews of that time, they would not allow to have any image on the coin. And so when Caesar takes over, when Rome comes in, just before the time of Jesus, they put Caesar's image on a coin that says, like, Caesar Tiberius, son of God, divine, right? That he's claiming divinity. But the Jews, their coins of the Judeans, they don't have the image of a man, They take images that don't have it. It's like a pomegranate. Like these are the images that belong to the Jewish people, but they're not the images that would offend. And that's what is coming into that story where they say to Jesus, so is it okay for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And he says, show me a coin. And they pull out that coin with the image on it, which they're not supposed to have. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and God what is God's. Who does this image belong to? Now, over and again, even through Christian history, we have struggled with these Images with what, what do we do with this? There's even times in our history with iconoclast movements where Christians in the time of the Reformation got real worked up and they said, see, no graven images. And they started knocking heads off of churches and destroying, going into the churches of the Catholic churches of that time, taking any image out, destroying them over and over and over again. And even we think that might be where the Sphinx's nose went. That there was an attempt to, we don't know exactly for sure, but it looks like it was chiseled off with some tools, not just because of wear and tear. That these images were not allowed anymore, and people were moving through that push to say no image at all. God has told us this. Now, we might not today walk around with little Baals in our pocket. You and I don't likely have little gelulim that we're working on, right, and trying to decide that this little thing in our life is a thing that's somehow going to save us. But we have other things, don't we? We have our right theology. We have our education. We have our degrees. We have our, our obedience, right? Like, I have done all of the right things, therefore that will protect me. I have pleased God. I have earned my way. God will protect me from these bad things. This is an idol. I work hard. I've earned my paycheck. And that's what gets me the thing that I deserve. Or maybe it's money or power or approval or pleasure or fame or success or comfort. Maybe it's our career. When we find ourselves holding more tightly to those things than the things of God, we find ourselves worshiping. Accidentally, oftentimes. It's not that we've set out, maybe like the ancients did, and said, hey, here's this little figure. I'm now going to set it on my shelf, and I'm going to decide that this is God. But instead, it's the things that we can't see, that we can't necessarily apprehend, but we, we do see and experience on a daily basis, right? I remember when I was growing up, my mom had this very strict rule about, um, this was like the social media of my time. We were not allowed to read Teen Magazine or Seventeen. And she, I was like, but Seventeen's the coolest one. I was probably 13. She's like, no, like, you're not 17 yet. That's why, that, that's why the title is there. Hilarious. So um, at, at some point, I remember disobeying and grabbing a hold of one of those magazines and reading the whole thing through. And I felt awful when I was done. You know, like, I was like, I don't look right. I don't have the right clothes. I need this new thing. I need that. This is the 10 ways to, you know, make, have a boyfriend, like all these things that were all there. And I remember evaluating it after that moment thinking, this is not how I want to feel. 
This is, this is worship of something other than who God has made me to be. I'm not going to pursue this anymore. And my mom didn't have to lecture me. It was like, you know, letting your kid, not that I had to do this, but like go out and smoke all the cigarettes. If she just let me, she had taught me well enough to that moment for me to assess that that was damaging and it was not good. I never read them again. Now there's a whole bunch of other things that I need to work on, right? But that, at least that one, I tossed that. I even don't like going to the grocery store sometimes when they have all those magazines stacked up right by the cashiers and you just have to like avert your eyes because something there is going to tell me that I don't have the thing that I need to have to walk in, that Target is not good enough for my purchases. Um, Now, I've found that when um, God tries to come along and relieve me of my dung balls, of my my gelulim, I frequently fight God off. I want to keep this. This is giving me some security in my life. If I do these next things, this is what I'm going to have. If I pursue this, and we, fight our, we find ourselves defending our dung ball. Do we not? That's how idols work. No, this one's mine. Don't you see how pretty it is? Never mind the smell. Um, ultimately, those things take hold of us and take us on a trip. I told you I researched this a lot. Um, Take us on a trip, right, that we don't want to go on. They become bigger than we can handle. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves, because of this idol worship in our life, we find ourselves in places that we do not want to be. By surprise. So if we saw, though, no form, how do we experience God? Because I understand why these sort of pictures or aspects of security are tempting. I understand why at the beginning of 1 Samuel, the Israelites take the ark of God into battle. Like maybe if God's box is with us, we'll win. And they lose because God doesn't do that. God does not take kindly to being put in boxes and they lose and it gets stolen. So that Eli, upon hearing the news, who's fat, so fat that when he hears the news, he falls over and breaks his neck. And it takes years for the Israelites to get that back. That I get why they did it because those little bits of security, man, whatever it is, again, Career, money, prestige, name, bank account, where we live, what we drive, how it works. Um, For me, it's the theological stuff, right? Like, didn't I pray it well, right? Didn't I say it the right way? Didn't I do all the things, God, that somehow if I did X, Y, and Z, I would be protected from this? These idols. I want to experience God, but God gave us no form at Mount Sinai. So how do we experience God? Well, I'm going to suggest it's through conversation and relationship. And that we deeply want a God. When we stood at Mount Sinai and we saw no form, guess what we did get? We heard a voice. We heard God, the creator of everything, speaking to us. Now, here's a picture of President Obama at his inauguration. Imagine yourself as one of those persons in the crowd. Give yourself even like, you know, six row seats, good seats in the crowd. 
Do you want to be there or do you want to be this kid? You see, there's something about visually apprehending God. If I can get a visual form, right? I'm in the fifth row, man. I got a great view of God. But if God speaks with me and I speak with God and God knows my name, by the way, I'm not saying in any way that this, but right, like the intimacy of that moment, it is relationship, relationship that gives us a connection. It's the word spoken. It's being listened to and listening. That's where the relationship happens, right? If I see you, but I don't know your name. We've seen each other and there can be security in the fact that we've had a visual appearance of one another. But it's when we sit down and we talk. And when I sit and listen, that's when the relationship is formed. You guys, your God so deeply loves you that God gave you no form at Mount Sinai but a voice. A voice that could speak. Now, as Christians, we do have a form. Not that we maybe have apprehended, but that people 2,000 years ago, as God wrapped God's self up in human flesh, in first century Jewish flesh, in the person of Jesus, that that form was one we could apprehend. And that as we think about it, we might say today, you know what, Jesus, if you could just stand right here and I could just apprehend you in the fullness of your humanity, that that's what would convince me that you're real, that you're alive, that you're present. But you know, the truth is that would be for a moment, wouldn't it? And you would then carry the story. I was there at Spark, and all of a sudden, Pastor Daniel was just talking. And then we should have said, hey, what if Jesus? And then all of a sudden, Jesus. And then it was amazing. And we tell that story. Just like we tell the stories of all the ways in which Jesus encountered others. All the ways in which Jesus pulled people in from the margins. The ways he cared for people. The ways he healed. The what he spoke. But ultimately, you know what I want? I want a God that walks and listens and hears me and is my good shepherd and that I can hear. And you guys are all going to say, Daniel, how do you hear God today? Here's this thing. If you have a Bible, even if it's on your phone, but grab a Bible. I used to do this with the kids all the time when I used to teach children's ministry full time. Pull out your Bible. Look. The words are still there. He's still speaking. God is still speaking. We can still listen. God is still speaking. We're looking for witnesses of the stories, right? This is what Moses is reminding the whole crowd of. Remember when you stood there, even though none of them stood there. Abraham Joshua Heschel, a Jewish philosopher, blessed memory rabbi, said, the essence of Jewish religious thinking does not lie in entertaining a concept of God, but in the ability to articulate a memory of moments of illumination by God's presence. Israel is not a people of definers, but a people of witnesses. People who have seen the stories and heard the stories of how God spoke. I love this picture of Sinai where it's the letters, the words that are coming down, not a form. This is actually how we come to faith today, isn't it? It's not because somebody ran up to us and said, hey, by the way, let me just look. 
Here's, a, here's an appearance for years of form. It's that somebody came and they witnessed to us and they told their story. They made those memories for us. This is exactly what Paul is talking about in the book of Romans, right? He's like, how are they to call on one in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in one of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone to proclaim him? And how are they to proclaim him unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So faith comes by hearing. Faith comes from what is heard. And what is heard comes to the word of Christ. This is our faith. It's a faith by hearing, not a faith of an apprehension of a physical form of God. We are called to make the stories known to the next generations, as Pastor Kevin talked about. But this is how the stories stay alive, isn't it? Parents, all of us who are in the lives of any child, anyone in this room who's alive, a child, it is our job to continue to pass along those stories. That's how the faith continues. That's how we continue to experience God. We experience God by standing at the foot of those holy moments and listening, not by what we see, but by what we hear and by how we've observed God's faithfulness in our lives, how we've observed and experienced God's faithfulness. We experience God through the stories of the past and the present. We experience God personally, don't we? But we also experience God as a community. Something might not happen for me, but if it happens for you, that's also my experience. And I get to tell that story. And we experience God in the ordinary, the everyday, as well as in the extraordinary. We experience God with our very lives. Beloved, since God so loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us. And his love is perfected in us. Brothers and sisters, this is how we get to see God, right? Through our deep love for one another, through the laying down of our lives for one another, through the rejection of the forms and the idols and the gelulim and all of the other things that are out there that are promising us security, we find and experience God as we love deeply one another and we experience that love ourselves. As we listen to the stories, as we tell them again, and as we lean in and try to find out where God is speaking and still speaking in our lives. One of our stories that we tell here every single Sunday as we invite the worship team up to come and lead us. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. With our very bodies, with our very mouths, with our hands today, right now, we will remember, we will witness, and we tell again the story of a God who so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him won't die but will have eternal life. Join us all are welcome at the table. May the God who had the wisdom to give us no form, but to speak these good words of hope and love, fill you up with every good gift and lead you into the ways that will bring you life and hope, into the ways that follow him and express his love in this world. 
In Jesus' name, amen.